Chapter nine, Tortoise Mountain wakes up. Yantu and Sui Feng were snowed in on Tortoise Mountain. Day after day, Yantu slept while Zhui Feng sat up and meditated. On the third day, Yantu sat up too and said, get some sleep. What do you think you are, a roadside shrine? Sui Feng touched his chest and said, my heart isn't at peace. I can't fool myself. Yan Tu gave a great yell. Don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in through the gate? He said. Let the teaching flow out from your own breast to cover the sky and the earth. Shui Feng was suddenly enlightened and cried out. Today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. I think the the question here is who are you of these two guys, the one who's sleeping or the one who's sitting? Or the mountain. I'm sorry, what? Or the mountain. Mountain. Oh, or the mountain. Mountain. Do you feel like the mountain, Milan? I haven't awakened yet, but <laughs> <laughs> any ideas here who you are? Definitely Shui Feng, although I would like to be the mountain, yes, that would be nice. Me too, Emily Shui Feng. Me too. No. What should we read? Friendship. So this really, it's kind of weird because this came right after this, but it's about the koan. We'll walk above the vineyards, whisper together, laughing, the tendrils uncurling, sky bending, a dry earth beneath, sun stripes on hill frank, flank, heads leaning toward, together, and never tire of that place, Alicia King. It's common to feel lonely to think of yourself as something small and solitary in the vastness of things. It's easy then to think of a friend as a home territory carved out of that vastness, a kind of living diary for sharing and storing the feelings of the day so that life can go on more or less as usual. Yet there are other kinds of friendship that don't assuage. Assuage. What does that mean? A soften, make it mellower, make it okay. less. A, a sage loneliness, thank you, but undermine it by changing your understanding of who you are. Friendships like this may be full of warm feeling. The friends may be kindred souls, recognizing that human achievement achievements are rarely solitary, even when they seem to be. But such good reasons are not the basis of this second sort of friendship, nor the source of its nourishment. 
This kind of friendship doesn't depend on reasons. Reasons, after all, come and go. What is beyond reasons might seem to be incomprehensible. But there are all sorts of things that we do just for their own sake, because we love them. And some friendships are beyond any why. If you have such a friendship, it can help you find your own strength. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So true. I agree. And it's kind of hard to live without those kind of friendships. I think that's where real loneliness comes in if you just have kind of superficial friendships. It's hard to live well. <laughs> It can yes. keep moving, but not well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The koan. On Mount Dezhan in China, long ago, there was a community where two men had gone to take refuge from the storms of life in the outside world, storms of which they had firsthand knowledge. Though at first they appeared to be opposites, they became friends. As it turned out, one whose name was, how did we say, Zuf, Zufang, lived a long time and became renowned. But for many years, no one expected much of him. Zufang was talented at one thing. He was a chef and brought to life the spiritual path a trust in hand in hard work precision and pleasure otherwise he was stocky solid of body and somewhat opaque in personality as if a great slowly heating energy in him kept the world somewhat at bay while showing much about his motives and way of living Feng hoped for an inner transformation, though it was no hurry to arrive. He persevered at what he did not seem to be working, which in his case was meditation. Since the alternative was, well, he didn't imagine the alternative. He was like the boy who doesn't have the knack with girls, but Doug, Doug Lee persists in inviting them out. Albert Ellis, the psychologist, tells the story that as a young man, he decided to invite 100 girls out since their refusals that met his first few attempts were obvious, the result of unpracticed teaching techniques, technique, pardon and small sample. Both of these problems, he told himself, himself, could be fixed by increasing the sample size. He went to the zoo where he had noticed women on benches reading books. He took, he too took a book inside on a bench. He invited 100 girls on a date. Not one said yes. So he decided that 100 was itself too small a sample and embarked on another 100 attempts. The man in our story, the man in our story had longed for enlightenment for 25 years. 
he also decided that he had not given the method enough of a chance. I'm going to listen, thank you. And this points to the deeper side of Shui Feng, which was that he had a feeling for duration, an appreciation that good things, oh, where did it go? I'm sorry. It's all good. What, help me with, um, Two more pages. Forward. Oh, okay. Seems to be zoomed in a little too much. One more page. Is that it? Next one. Wait, wait, wait. I lied to you. No, I misrepresented. I didn't lie. One page back. Let's see. Another page back. And while we sit here, I'm marveling at technology that we're even able to do this together. I think if you pull back just a little bit, it'll make it easier. I don't know what you mean by pull back. Make, uh, make it a little bit smaller again. Yeah. Um, hmm. and to see here. Remember how you had it with two pages on the screen? I can do two pages like that. I don't. Is there a bar, Kim? down near the bottom that has like a plus and a minus sign with the you're on a mac right yeah so hit command minus like two times a little bit more yeah oh i know what's uh what's this Um, Jesus. I'm so sorry. Uh, You're fine. Okay. So okay. Can you find the page? Um, we only see part of the page. Oh, okay. And, and um, do you need to zoom out? No, I just let me try. It, is it possible to leave it that way and then we can enlarge it on our own screen with our? No. Oh, there we go. There you go. Okay, now That's we fine. find the page. Um, a previous page. A previous page. 
a previous page. Again. There you go. Well, we read this part. Did we? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so as a chef, wrote, but as a chef, it gave him a nice sense of. So the last thing. phrase I ended up with was the feeling of duration, which I think is on the previous page. Oh, okay. At the bottom. Still previous? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. There it is. At this, yeah. and this points to the deeper side of Shui Feng, which was that he had a feeling for duration, an appreciation that good things take time to occur. He liked to gather evidence to make the right decision, savored the slowness of gardens unfolding, of flowers and galaxies unfurling, of a mushroom sauce simmering and blending. He liked writing and remembered that the first written characters had come from the patterns made by heat when using a tortoiseshell as an oracle. He wasn't sure that he actually believed that story, but as a chef, it gave him a nice sense of history. For him, achievements came through accumulation, layering one act on top of another. The other man in this story is Yan To, who was younger and a kind of clown who claimed to be more enlightened than the teacher. He made jokes about religion, sex, and the toilet, which was not remarkable, but he and Xiu Feng did live in a monastery. Some teachers secretly hope that such students will turn out badly so they can say, how impossible he was. Yang Tao's teacher was old and indifferent to others' opinion and promoted Yang Tao. His clowning had dark underpinnings and seemed to help maintain temple life, which could be the overlay devoted to light. In 845, when Buddhists were being hunted and killed by an emperor who didn't fancy them. The teacher had spent the year in a cave doing nothing much, waiting it out. Yantao became a ferryman and took people across the river, gaining the other shore is a metaphor for enlightenment. So this was another of his jokes. He didn't take a crisis more seriously than, say, the weather. People admired this quality while privately wondering if it merely showed heartlessness. Su Feng genuinely liked Yanto. He was sure that Yanto was a kind of genius far ahead of him in ability, yet he always felt completely accepted by the younger man. The chef believed that just as enlightenment took his time coming, friendships needed time to deepen. He held Yanto in his heart as his friend and when they were together, believed all things were possible.
Now, if you were Yantu's friend, he didn't share your emotions and the disappointments of love and work. You couldn't talk through a crisis with him in order to continue your life on more or less the previous pre-crisis trajectory. Yantu wasn't useful for that. He didn't care about restoring normalcy. What he did help with was a change of heart. He was always willing to experiment with, on your mind. His empathy was not, was not for your problem, but for the way your problem might open the gate. Whatever differences, whatever the differences in their approach, where you saw Yantao, you would soon see Wafang. Between retreat periods, they took holidays together, wandering in the mountains. So it seemed clear that the friendship was mutual. One afternoon, late in the year, they were being tourists, walking through a valley in Hunan. Yantu had a childlike readiness to be interested in everything, a chestnut tree, a butterfly, another traveler. Sometimes he had zero attention span, but then when he did fix on something, he ignored everything else. His lively face was relatively unlined. Shui Fan was as happy as he could be with his friend. He looked straight ahead and stumped along, sweating, responsible, like a bear in a fairy tale, loaded with cooking pots. He liked to walk. He liked the load on his back and the feeling of weight that it gave to his life. Walking wasn't necessarily a means to get anywhere. To be in time to wander made time seem less of a burden, the present more enduring. As the afternoon wore on, they climbed higher. More mountains appeared, and they crossed out of autumn into winter. There was gravel under their feet now. Clouds spread from the north. The wind pierced their clothes, and Zhu Fang began carefully not to think about getting warm. Yan Tou complained and laughed and waved his arms about and seemed to enjoy the change. By evening, they had made it to the pass and Tortoise Mountain Travelers Inn, which was really more of a hut. Its existence was due to cartographic whim. Two provinces had boundaries there, and a custom station was needed. Their room had a fire that vented underneath the brick bed. It was the only furniture. In the night, when Zhu Fang went outside for a moment, it was very cold, and a wall of stillness met him. Large flakes of snow began to fall as if he had awoken just to see them, just to see them start. In the morning, no one was on the roads. He had a timeless, restful feeling looking out at the white expanse. The two companions ate rice and millet and regarded the walls. Yan too, having exhausted his jokes, rolled back onto his part of the bed wrapped himself in the quilt and slept. Zhu Fang thought he could make use of this opportunity and sat up meditating. 
He startled quickly and didn't feel tired or bored. His mind was calm and spacious inside the little hut. He was concentrating so hard that he sweated and seemed to be losing weight. It snowed for three, oh, sorry. But no one's, uh, you know, said anything. What are you, are you getting from all this? Well, my, my question was way back when, so a couple, three paragraphs ago, it, it spoke to um, Zhu Feng really feeling a deepening and more deepening sense of friendship and that, and the image the sentence presented as proof that the feeling was mutual, um, was that they walked together. You could see them together all the time. And what came up in my mind was, what was the reciprocity? What for young two was the reciprocity? Did he have similar, and I don't know that it's relevant, but I just wonder, did he have similar feelings of being accepted, whereas he wasn't accepted by other monks because of the way he was, whereas Xu Feng did? And I, I just find the relationship lovely and interesting, too. That's all. They complement each other like yin and yang, yeah. don't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. I yeah. was very much struck by the sentence that he carried a load as if it gave weight to his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was really interesting because I think I do that a lot. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. You see it as a, neg as a negative thing or positive? Uh, no, it's just a, it's a, it can be an illusion. Does it mean weight like heaviness or weight like meaning to his life? Yeah. So um, it can give meaning, except that if you carry too much, then it becomes too painful. And that's not as meaningful. So there's a little bit of a balance. I, reading this so far in its entirety, what I came to was that he was dragging himself through life, that he hoped for something, that he was continued to practice toward it in hopes that he would get there, wherever there was for him. But in the interim, to keep himself going, he would um, drag himself through life with these tasks that filled his days and gave them some kind of purpose. That's how I was seeing it. Yeah, that's how I saw it too. Emily, can you say the, the sentence that you mentioned again, please? It's like a two, uh, one, maybe one page back. Oh, jeez. Sorry. Um, one, one more. Make one more. Um, he, Feng was as happy as could be with his friend. He looked straight ahead and stumped along sweating, responsible, like a bear in a fairy tale, loaded with cooking pots. 
He liked to walk. He liked the load on his back and the feeling of weight that it gave to his life. Thank you. Oh, but more, even more than that, the sentence that just, I went, oh, my heart just broke him. Walking wasn't necessarily means to get anywhere. Be in time to wander made time seem less of a burden. I'm like, oh, his life is heavy. Yeah, and he's holding on to the present. Like he's like, this weight makes the present more lasting. And we all know the present is gone quickly. So that's why I thought of it less. Uh, but then it shows up right again, really quick. Yeah, I thought of it less as like giving his life meaning and more like a crutch. The thing is that the cooking pots, when we go anywhere and we get a purse or a backpack or whatever we use to carry our things, we put all the stuff that we think we need. We may put some stuff that we don't really need, but we say, we may and at the beginning when we start walking it's not how heavy it is it's not an issue but as you walk and walk and walk and the day extends that's when you start to feel how heavy that was that is and that's when you start to think maybe i don't need to be carrying so many things Maybe I could leave this out. Maybe I could leave that out. And I think that the cooking pots represent that. And in a way, it's something that is comforting. It makes us be ready for whatever we think it might come. It helps us do what we want to do. But at the same time, there's going to be moments that is going to be, this is too much. I need to carry less. And we may think about our lives and change some, some things. So I think it's a way of living life and paying attention to life and how we live it and how we can overdo it. Or maybe sometimes we can go, I needed to bring this other thing. Scarlett, that was lovely, thank you this being a metaphor for the things we carry through life that we think we need and actually become the burdens. Thank you. I think Nandia wants to say something. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just read this really simply as what it says. I don't think it's real complex. It's like Sometimes when I'm lying in bed, the feeling of a blanket on top of me feels really good. It creates mm -hmm. a comfort. He liked the feeling of weight that it gave to his life. It's offering some substantiality. It's a, it's a certain physicality that's being connected with. Don't think it's... I don't feel a big complex hoo-ha around this. Just a simple loveliness, so for me. 
that's I was kind of thinking that it was much like you said, um, a grounding and aren't we all supposed to strive to be in the present? And that that was that's a way of reminding oneself that you need to be in the present while you're carrying your load. You need to be um, aware of what is present rather than worrying about, you know, whether you brought the right thing or whether you have too much or too little. And it's a way of drawing your attention back to the present. But the striving those... causes an additional problem. Hmm. Peg and Flint were talking to me a lot about, and talking to all of us, I think, about the bodhisattva being as opposed to doing. To be in time, to wander, I've made time seem less of a burden, the more, the present more enduring. So how mm -hmm. do you do that? How do you be in the present without striving to be in the present? When you find out, please tell me. I have one idea when my mind wanders in Sazen in the morning, all of a sudden the bird song, that loud, sharp bird song, Outside the Zendo, as I sit there on Zoom, brings me right back to the moment. Right back to the moment. I'm so grateful for those birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, going back to the metaphor of the backpack or the cooking pots, it is when you load up with things that from your past experience, you know that you need, or you think that you need. And then you also expect certain things in the future. So you also have things for what you expect you may need. But then when you're in the present and you get ready to cook, that's the moment where you see, where you only use what is related to the present. And it will not be the past nor the future. True. Should I continue? Okay, yes. Is this where we are? Mm -hmm. Okay. Before, before you go, Milen, I would like to mention that the sentence that stayed with me was when they were together, they believed that anything was possible. Hmm. That's a nice one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's now for three days and three nights. Every now and then, Yantu opened his eyes, so Shuefang, sitting in the firelight, got up, loaded the fire, and went back to sleep. Feng thought that his friend didn't care much about duration, about the slow gathering of readiness, and didn't seem to take time to decide or to learn. Yantu seemed like an anthropologist, as if he came from a world in which time was not strict and life and death were not the main thing, just things among other things. 
Yantu had once said that he liked to live, that just to live was enough. So who knows, perhaps even the sleeping for days was thrilling for him. His kindness, Huofeng decided, came from the way he relaxed and let time and the moment come over him. He didn't want to be other than where he was. And although he didn't seem to need much himself, he enjoyed bringing, bringing others into a similar understanding. Then Xuefeng drifted off into places where his thoughts were lighter than snowflakes and melted before he could grasp them. Nelda or Nandia? Well, Nandia, would you like to read or would you still like to pass? No, Nelda, thank you. All right. On the third day, Yang Tao sat up and said bluntly, amiably, get some sleep. What do you think you are, a roadside shrine? Only the slightest threads of melancholy lay on Shui Feng, but they burned like the long streamers of a jellyfish. He touched his chest and said simply, my heart isn't at peace. I can't fool myself. And I thought up here where it was so quiet. I'll read one more. Yang Tao said, I always thought you'd be a teacher being so sincere and all. Su Feng usually took his friend literally since the other possibilities were too various to work out. The meditation was making Suofeng notice the visual oddity of ordinary things, their tendency to tilt into the non-ordinary. His friend's eyes looked beautiful, not quite human in the dim light. Well, since you ask, yes, I do worry. I get anxious. My life is going past me like a galloping horse. I get depressed. I don't feel that I'm of any use. But at other times, I feel clear as if, well, that's not the slightest veil over my eyes. And then I forget again. Why don't you tell me? <clears throat> I can let you know if you're right on if you're on the right track and where you're not. Down to green. I'll whack your ideas away, prone to views. Shui Fang took the invitation as a cue to describe moments of treasured insight, years of them. Everything he understood about the universe. Yes, he thought. This is exactly what I need to tell my friend and he'll understand. Once he began to talk, he warmed to the task and his yearning grew. His chest actually hurt. Each experience he described, Yantab batted away. Shui Fang couldn't protest. The stories were nice, 
but they were in the past. He was saying it was as if the bottom dropped out of a bucket. But the contrarian voice in his head was not impressed. Where's that bottomless bucket now? It asked. The bucket still has its fears in it. Yonsu wasn't impressed either. Shui Fang saw that what had been significant at one time, a glimpse of a great happiness was indeed real. Yet it no longer had the power to soothe. Shui Fang felt pale and wan. His balloon had been punctured. But even this emotion he saw as just a small transparent doubt. Almost a prayer, a tear, a raindrop, a glass bead. Without his achievements to compare itself with, his sorrow drifted away. A simple quiet remained. Then, into the silence, Yantu did something surprising. He roared. His roar or shout, or whatever it was, was deafening in the hut. That's when everything stopped for Shuifan. He didn't think noise or loud. He didn't hear. Nothing was on his mind. Shuifeng shivered and shook. The hook from an old song looped in his head. Anywhere else is too far away. At this moment, his thoughts didn't feel as if they belonged to him. Then Yang Tu said, don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in by the gate? Let the teaching flow out from your own breast to, co to cover the sky and the earth. These ordinary words hit Zhu Feng like a blow in the chest. His heart felt larger than all of space. He wept and shouted. He yelled out for joy. Today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. Tortoise Mountain has achieved the way. Yantu laughed and thumped him and grabbed him and they danced together. They danced slowly with encumbered grace while the snow fell quietly and the world was otherwise still. When Yantu ate an extra helping of rice and went back to sleep. Xu Fang didn't sleep, but watched in happiness the whole night through. Working with the Khan. What if it's true that real insight and joy don't come from the direction you expect, expect such things to come from? If what you really want could come from any direction, that information might change the way you conduct yourself. Instead of watching out for danger, you might be vigilant for happiness. Some people don't remember their dreams Yet, if they try to remember, their dreams come gradually into awareness. But first, a wisp, then, as in, and so on, and so on. 
they are learning how to walk in. The dreams to main and things that once seemed too small to notice become obvious. Happiness could be like this. If you were willing to relax with whatever, whatever came, there could be nothing wrong with sadness or any other difficulty. Since joy might be hiding anywhere, you could be willing to look with curiosity at sadness or fear, just in case. Thank you, Kim. Shui Feng's version of this strategy is to wait and let things come to him. When you feel sorrow, it might be taken as a request to sit down right where you are in the brown Afghan carpet and feel more of your own life. Or maybe you're happy there on the brown Afghan carpet. It doesn't matter. Suddenly you hear, really hear the Canadian geese crying overhead. If you don't ask your sorrow to leave or try to make happiness stay, Either might be something merely present like the snow on Tortoise Mountain. Then both happiness and sorrow can be interesting and even, paradox and even paradoxically satisfying. Sorrow might be a sort of reverse Pandora's box from which, when you open it, happiness flies out. I might jump up and say, today the Canada geese have attained the way. I haven't heard that that um, expressed like that. This idea that the joy might be hiding inside sadness. Think of when someone you love dearly passes away, and there's the sorrow of that loss. But underneath that. And I remember this in going through a family member's or several family members' belongings and sorting them to see what would stay and what would go. Those sweet memories, and several of us were gathered a, a couple of times, that came back when we'd uncover a treasure, a silly thing, and, and the story would come up and we'd all laugh together. So I see it kind of that way. I don't know how anyone else sees it. That's beautiful. I like that. That's why I'm leaving a, a garage full of stuff for my son to go through when I pass so he can uncover the treasure. <laughs> to me, it was more like accepting human life as it is. So I was thinking in sad things going on with my mom's but maybe for me just to accept those as they are could bring some happiness in terms of just accepting them in my case 
I see it as, like you're saying, Milen, accepting life as is. Like, for example, in my situation, I live with pain. And I, it, it really didn't shift for me until I saw it as I, it's something like if, for example, if it is winter and it's snow, that is, you cannot change that. But you can change what you do with it. So I can put on a coat, I can put gloves and a scarf. So I will be warm when I'm out there. I can even get skis so I can, fun, I can have fun skiing. It, I can build a fire and roast marshmallows on it. So even though it's extremely cold, a cold that could kill, well, you can adapt to it and make a life independent of that. So you can actually find even joy. I'm not just speaking with you, Malin, and I know I've already talked a lot, but I, I just want to share this and not everyone has had this experience. And I'll keep because, but it's not about me and my experience. It's that's just the uh, the platform to say something more. Um, I never attached to my mom emotionally. It was too dangerous to do that. So I never had with my mom ever, even the day she died, um, any feeling of loss. The only feeling I had was a sense of. I, I wish I could have done more. I should have done more. I wish there had been some way I could have done more. And when I see people, and you mentioned in one of our previous meetings, that those people, I think it was in Buddhist action now, that those people who grounded you and make you felt loved and valued in your life were your parents. To have that person in your life and it be your parent from the time you were born and the love that you've grown and nurtured over time. How lovely, how lovely to love someone that much that when their time came to be to need you, that you would be there with the heart you have for them. It's lovely. It's like when when I watch people who are happily married you know, for years and years and years, like him and his wife. Um, I delight in that. I delight in seeing that kind of love and connection, just like the friendship we are listening to. So on the other side of that, dealing with the awful, difficult things that come in life, the things that connects you to those is the deep love. And I bow to you for that. And I hope you remember that, that that's why you're able to hold all of that and carry all of that because you love so deeply. All of us, I hope we remember that.
Thank you, Nana. When my grandmother passed, she was like about um, 97. So I knew she was going to die. And I loved her very, very much. She was like a mother to me. But it wasn't, it didn't, um, I knew that it was her time. And I knew that it was important to me to be there for her at the time of her death and watch her pass and be there with her. Um, and somehow that made it better. It was an incredibly, incredibly sad time. Yet to have that gift of spending those very precious last moments with her. Um, I wish everyone could have that. It's, um, it's truly a transformative experience. That's not going to work. Whose turn is it to read? I think it's, it's me, right? I'm sorry. I think that's a good place to start, Starlet. Go ahead. <laughs> There is a saying that everything we do is in the service of the self. And there isn't one, a self, that is. Su Feng felt that he had joined his friend's world because they now shared a language. Su Feng saw the mountain as his own body, and so it too became enlightened. That was rather a lot of a self to have, but it wasn't personal or grand. What if he had awakened at the sight of a mouse? Would he have shouted? Today the mouse has attained the way. Yes, he decided. He would have. What he had thought of as himself wasn't so important after all. He decided that this insight was what made Janto seem so objective. Janto didn't have an idea of Janto that he had to groom and manicure. Janto kept ringing in the brightness of the things around fame who against all expectation became notable and funny. Thousands of people came to Shui-Fang. Some of his students became great teachers of the age. Some were transformed, but lived invisible and anonymous. As Chinese dragons are supposed to, teaching calligraphy in malls. Others, of course, noticed no particular change in themselves. When people thank him, he said, 
it's got nothing to do with me. He seemed to regard teaching as an extended party with dark jokes. <laughs> Fang did not think of his point of view as limited to his own body or his own personality, but he spoke also for the cities, the rivers, the trees. William Blake saw heaven in a wildflower. Mm. Fang said, when I pick up the earth in my fingers, it's the size of a grain of rice. When I drop it, it might as well be in a black bucket. You can't find it anywhere. Hit the drum, call everyone to look for it. Another time, perhaps when the piety of the monks was getting on his nerves, he said, the whole world is a monk's eye. Where will you go to shit? <laughs> when Yang Tu became a teacher, his character was this was as it always had been, unpredictable, indifferent to the things others prized. He was so clever that people just assumed he knew what he was doing. When his temple was attacked, he sent his people away, but himself sat in meditation in the great hall. Perhaps he was tired of the long war. Perhaps he looked inside and couldn't find that the thought couldn't find the thought of running away. A soldier rode in over the black and white tiled floor and killed him with a spear. Yantu had said that when he went, he would go with a great shout. And in the villages for miles around, people claimed to have heard this yell, his last teaching, the same one he had given on Tortoise Mountain. When he was a friend, he was a good friend. And when it was time to go, he wasn't the sort of person to hang around. Well, the obvious theme of this koan about Tortoise Mountain is to point out that unpredictable sources of joy friend. The true friend here is the one who surprises or disturbs you in a particular way. As long as you are fixated in a particular direction, the friend may seem like a distraction or even a nuisance, but when that happens, he or she is probably doing a good job of being your friend. Let's uh, reread the koan, okay? It should make more sense now. Oops, if I can do this. This was a great experience to just do this on my laptop and to see the trouble that some of you had. What do you usually use if not oh, your laptop? I have two 27-inch monitors and the laptop. So you're usually using a big monitor when you... Two. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, and uh, <laughs> I don't know whether I would go for this as a permanent arrangement <laughs> and i can't see myself we neither <laughs> i agree okay who who would read this the koan i will thank you starlet 
tortoise mountain wakes up. Yan To and Su Feng were snowed in a tortoise mountain. Day after day, Yan To slept with Su Feng, sat up and meditated. On the third day, Yan To sat up and said, get some sleep. What do you think you are, a roadside shrine? Sua Feng touched his chest and said, my heart isn't at peace. I can't fool myself. Yang Tao gave a great yell. Don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in through the gate? He said, let the teaching flow out from your own breast to cover the sky and the earth. Sua Feng was suddenly enlightened and cried out, today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. How did he know his friend was awake all that time if he'd been sleeping? <laughs> Good question. I think we're looking at the story from a third person object, um, a third person objective that the story is being told about the two people. So that's how we know that. I don't know how he knew, but that's how everybody. Nobody told him get some sleep. He'd right. probably been sitting there and looked exhausted. Yeah. Because they said at one point that he had lost weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I bet his eyes might have been just red. <laughs> and he probably knew his friend quite well by then. He may have asked him. So, did you sleep while I slept? Yeah. Tim, is it possible to share the last page of the chapter? To share the last page, it's possible. Is it probable? No, just a second. Here we go. I enjoyed so much looking at you guys. Okay, you want me to go to the last page of the whole the Okay. We heard two shouts, didn't we, in the koan, and then hear this shout when he was killed. true friend here is one who surprises or disturbs you in a particular way. So what's the real practice? Is it sleeping or is it sitting? You know, there's another koan about polishing a mirror. Do any of you know about that one? Yeah. Thinking that that will uh, bring enlightenment. A really neat one. 
wonder if I could find it fast. I think this koan is really beautiful because he spends all this time, how many years have he passed, trying to look inside of him and just quiet his mind, be able to achieve meditation. And then the moment he stopped doing that and he just allowed himself to flow out of him, that's when he was able to achieve it. So instead of looking inside, instead of trying to find meaning on absolutely everything, it was just, just be yourself and just let it be. And <laughs> don't keep it hidden. I thought that was beautiful. I did too. And it seems to be the importance of reaching out to someone who you wouldn't think would offer you that shortcut. And then they end up doing that. You never know. Someone once said to me that a true one friend is someone who properly reflects you, all of you, your um, brilliant and dark places with love and compassion. Here's, here's the beautiful koan that I, th I think there's a connection. In fact, um, one of my teachers who used to be at the Austin Zen Center, I don't know if you've heard me tell this story, but he was completely puzzled by, he was a former Episcopalian priest, and then he turned to Buddhism, and he was completely puzzled by koans. And so his teacher, who's Rev Anderson, maybe some of you have heard of him, um, said, just copy the whole book of koans. And when he saw all the koans together, he was able to understand each one. But th this, this is, uh, someone want to read this? Uh, it's called Nangaku Polishes a, a Title, uh, a Tile, sorry. Is it big enough? Mm -hmm. Emily, you want to read it? Yeah, I can read it. Okay, thank you. Nangaku compares Basso's practice of Zazen to become a Buddha, as useless and as futile as polishing a tile to make a mirror. In the Zen tradition, the mirror serves as a symbol of enlightened mind. Here is the story. Nangaku one day goes to Basso's hut, where Basso stands waiting. Nangaku asks, what are you doing these days? Basu says, these days, Doitsu just sits. Nangaku says, what is the aim of sitting in Zazen? Basu says, the aim of sitting in Zazen is to become Buddha. Nangaku promptly fetches a tile and polishes it on a rock near Basu's hut. Basu, on seeing this, asks, what is the master doing? Nangaku says, polishing a tile. Basso says, what is the use of polishing a tile? Nangaku says, I am polishing it into a mirror. Basso says, how can polishing a tile make it into a mirror? Nangaku says, how can sitting in Zazen make you into a Buddha? Hmm. 
<laughs> you see the connection? Okay. You know, what's the real practice? Kim, have I heard somewhere that, I guess I'm listening again to beginner's mind. Um, and the first chapter, the second chapter was about how one sits in Zazen, the proper way to sit in Zazen. And then at some point I seem to recall in that chapter about sitting in Zazen, after you follow all these forms, that if you are in the proper form, you are already sitting in enlightenment. Have you heard that? Did I misread sure. that? In fact, we were talking about that in the intensive. Yeah. It's just the practice is being Buddha. Just the practice. And that was the question I had as Emily was reading. Wait, becoming Buddha? He wants to become Buddha? Just sitting in the practice. You are already there. Isn't that a contradiction of the koan you just read? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Every, it's full of contradictions, all of this stuff. 